Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. For years, Detective Maxine Farrell has been the only police officer in Anchorage, Alaska, sure that a serial killer is at work. Troopers confirm a second body of a dancer has been found on the Kinnick River. Now, a body of a young dancer has been found on the Kinnick River, killed in exactly the same way as another dancer, Sherry Morrow, who was discovered just a year before. A police source says there are still many more girls missing. How did it feel to have confirmation that you're right, there is indeed a serial murder operating right now. I didn't need the confirmation, you know, because I already knew it. I believed it with all my heart. That's why I was going at it so hard. Are you thinking, okay, now things are going to be moving forward? Yeah, I thought they would move forward. Everybody else had to pay attention now, and we had to get more things going on to get this guy. Do you get anybody saying, damn, Maxine, you were right? Nobody. Not in my department, anyway. This is Mind of a Monster, The Butcher Baker, and I'm Dr. Michelle Ward. In this seven-part series, we're in 1980s Alaska to unravel a serial murder case that spans over a decade. This is episode four. Your job is to protect and serve. It's September 1983, and it looks like Maxine has been right all along. A serial killer is at large, but she's still relatively powerless. Because as a detective in the Anchorage Police Department, she has no jurisdiction over the bodies on the Kinnick River. They are on Alaska State Trooper territory. And after a year of no new leads on the Sherry Morrow case, a new guy is put in charge. His name is Sergeant Glenn Flothy. In my meetings with him and, and face-to-face, he's kind of professorial. There's something more intellectual about him. You know, somebody who, you know, hand on his chin, really deep thinker, really thinking through stuff, really methodical. Author Leland Hale met Glenn Flothy in the 1980s. And I've got this picture of Glenn here. He's thin and really tall. He's got this thick brown mustache and these wire rim aviator glasses. He's hard to describe. Um, He has almost an earnest look to him. Leland, he doesn't look like I would imagine a police sergeant to look. No, he did not. He was actually already known as a good homicide investigator. He'd originally been in Fairbanks. And he had four or five, six cases that he, you know, he brought to fruition and it was, it was really his ability to put people at ease and get them to talk and not always in a confrontational cop stuff. Glenn's still alive, but he doesn't do media interviews. He's put all of this behind him, and that's where he'd like it to stay. And I get that. He threw all of himself into this case. And as we go farther into the story, I think you'll start to understand. 
But we have managed to get access to some transcripts of interviews with Glenn from 1984 that have never been made public before now. So when you hear Glenn's voice as the story goes on, it's an actor reading from those transcripts. In September 1983, Glenn joins Sergeant Lyle Haugsven on the case. I see myself as a catalyst. I think that's where my ability lies. And another thing I want to point out that I feel strongly about, Lyle gave the best he could. He himself, as a human being, was as emotionally involved and charged in the case as I was, perhaps in a different way. Glenn starts by looking at the case notes from the latest body, who's been identified as 31-year-old dancer Paula Goulding. I've got some of those case notes in front of me now, and there's one key observation here. The report reads, quote, Scene observations. The gravesite is located on a slough flowing south on the west side of the Connect River. The area is remote and can be reached by airplane and shallow draft boats, end quote. Both Sherry Morrow and Paula Goulding were shot in the chest, and two twenty-three casings are discovered in their graves, but there is one big difference between the two. Sherry's body is next to farmland and accessible by vehicle. To get to Paula Goulding's gravesite, you have to fly or boat into it. Author Leland Hale. So now this, this sort of changes the tenor of what they're looking for. You know, they're looking for someone probably who's a hunter, right? Who knows this area from hunting here. Now, that's not a small population in Alaska, but it's not the whole, you know, it's not all of Anchorage. Glenn also inherits the file from Anchorage Police Department cop Greg Baker with details of the Cindy Paulson case, the 17-year-old sex worker who claimed to have been held captive and raped in a house, then driven to Merrill Airfield to be taken out to the wilderness on a plane. Greg's prime suspect is Robert C. Hansen, the owner of said plane. Baker's report made it apparent that Hansen was more than a baker who had a problem with a prostitute. Made the hair stand up on the back of my neck. Putting these two pieces together is what Glenn remembers as the moment that would set him on a quest for justice. Until then, the plane had not become key. That was the blinding light. Glenn is convinced Hansen is his man but he knows that what he has so far is no more than a strong hunch. Leland, you can't put someone away for owning a plane, right? So it's not enough to bring murder charges because at, at the early point, all they have is shell casings and they have this history of bad incidents with women. He needs a search warrant to go into Hansen's house and find the weapon because they need to tie this these shell casings to a person who owns the weapon. But that's no easy task either. You got to convince a district attorney and a judge that you need the warrant. And of course, that's the case here. From then on, we dug up everything we could on Bob Hansen. Glenn Flothy, he had to go digging deep to pull out all those case materials. Because some of the records about Hansen were not available. They were not available because the, the Alaska State Troopers was in the midst of converting everything to a, a computer record. And so they literally taken the paper files and they were scanning them and digitizing them. And so they weren't all available. But because this guy, Hansen, had been around Alaska and been in the police viewfinder since at least 1971, there were these memories. And Flothy considers himself kind of like the chronicler. So when they started telling him, oh, I remember that guy. Oh, I remember that guy. Flothy starts to build a detailed picture of Hansen's past record. He receives the arson reports from Iowa. He talks to Ron Rice about the Susan Hepburn and Patty Roberts cases in 1971 and discovers the shoplifting of a chainsaw in 1975. He also digs up another case, that of black dancer Christy Hayes, who was abducted in 1979, but managed to escape. Sergeant Floth, and uh, there was another guy. They came to my house, knocked on my door. They didn't call me, they knocked on my door and asked me, will I come and look at some pictures? I said, yes. 
Christy has never spoken to any media before. We've brought her into a conference room in downtown Anchorage where she still lives. Christy's set up with a can of soda under bright overhead lights, looking more than a little nervous. She appears a lot younger than her 63 years with this beautiful, smooth skin and a huge smile. I want to start with, are you originally from Anchorage? I'm originally from Klamath Falls, Oregon. I came up here through Talents West uh, on a um, dancing gig. Oh, you came up through Talents West? I didn't know that. Yes. So this really is news to me. You'll remember that Talents West is the organization that was bringing young women to Anchorage on contracts that required them to pay back their airfare and to pay them rent. When Talents West contacted you, what did they tell you about coming up there? They said that I would have shelter, uh, um, income, uh, and I signed this waiver. So if I backed out, there'd be problems. And that's how I got tricked up here. You felt you were tricked? Yes. I worked at the Embers Nightclub. How old were you when you began dancing there? I was 19. Did you feel safe working at Embers? No, pretty much there was a lot of pimps in control of the girls is something that I just never got into. I don't like the way they beat their women into submission. So with me, the pimps never got along. They threatened me all the time. So imagine a young girl in this whirlwind of chaos. Add to that that Christy is Black, one of just a handful of Black people living in Anchorage at the time. It could not have been easy. Then, on October 14, 1979, this one guy walks into the Embers Club. He came into the club, and my boss just kept walking right by me. There's a customer over there. He said, I think it's about time to get a little, get more friendly. Go off of a drink at a table dance, and I did. He was all, it was hard to look at him face to face because he had so many pocket marks on his face. His face was uh, infested with acne, really bad acne. And those glasses that he had on were so thick and big. So you give him a table dance, and what happens after that? Be patient with me, because my mind is scattered. You know, I lost, I had amnesia for a while. And you know how that stuff, when you, when you get amnesia, it starts to come back. And you get little pieces of this, and little pieces of that. And it comes to me in dream form. Christy has PTSD, and she gets flashbacks all the time. And this incident still haunts her. I was coming out of the club that one night, and he was waiting outside. And uh, before we had talked inside, he said he had some jewelry if I was interested in, in buying. And that was a sucker for that, so I said, yeah. And he was just in the back of my camper. I followed him to the camper, he opened the door, and he pulled out a 44 Magnum, nickel-plated Magnum on me. He says, back up, don't scream, and take off all your clothes. I'm like, what? Because I mean it, take off all your clothes or I'll it won't be nice. And I did, I was just petrified. It was so, I was just petrified. And, and I proceeded to take off my clothes. So at this moment, you're thinking, what? I was just so scared, I didn't feel anything. I was just so scared. Sub- submit, that's what was going through my mind. And he put the snare wires on my ha- my wrist. Then lifted me up and put me in this bed and tied my feet to my hands backwards. And so he proceeded to um, hog tie me. And I have, still have some of the marks on my wrist from where he had to hog tied me. Hog tied. You've seen that before. It means that Christy had her hands tied to her feet behind her back. It's how you tie up an animal by all four legs. Now, at this point, you're tied up, you're naked, he doesn't rape you. And what do you think that was about? Yes, this is, this is it, this is it. Because if you're going to rape me, you're going to rape me already. But you tied me up with snare wash, so that means you're going to kill me. This is what's going through my mind. So now he starts driving. What are you feeling? Panic. I'm, the more I move, the tighter the, the, the wires got. And I finally just said the Lord's Prayer, and I've seen like a flash, and the, the wire snapped. 
Wow. I was scrambling to get um, the wires off me, and when he turned and looked in the window and see me escaping, he put the brakes on him. I went flying to the other side of the camera and hit my my face, face first. That's where that dip in my bone comes from. The scar's pretty much gone away, but you can feel the bone. I went flying and went unconscious for a while. When I woke up, he had stopped. Remember here that we're in a camper. Hansen has just gotten out of the driver's seat and he's walking around to the back where Christy is completely naked. There's a small window between her and the driver's cab up front. So I've got the wires off of my wrist and my feet. And I opened up that window that separates the camper from the cab and crawled right through there, slammed it back shut and, and locked it and locked both sides, the passenger side and the driver's side. Oh, you are smart. Because now he can't slide open that window and he can't get in the doors. And so then I um, I was looking for the keys. Uh, so I put my hand up for the dishes and they were gone. He came back around to the, the passenger side and uh, said, open the door, open the door. I was like, no, I was screaming and screaming and screaming. I was screaming, you're trying to kill me. And he put his fist through the window and broke it on the driver's side. Wow. So he busts through the glass, and now you're screwed again. Now you need to make a choice. I ran out of the passenger side. I escaped running butt naked through rocks and sticks and trees and barbed wire. And I came up on this fence, this this chain link fence, and I went over that fence. Don't ask me how. Left this barbed wire. You were probably running so fast. <laughs> I flew. Maybe I grew wings. You grew wings. I grew wings. I had to get over there, and I landed up in the back of this lady's um, yard or the front yard, and I um, beat the, beat it on the door. Help! Please help me. Call the police. And they snatched the door open. <laughs> and I'm standing there butt-ass naked, and it was a meeting with Jehovah Witnesses. <laughs> oh, that was the shock of their life, too. The house Christie's talking about, it's just about as suburban as you could possibly imagine. It has a double garage and two levels with a slate roof. And the woman who opens the door, the Jehovah's Witness, Mildred Johnson, she opens it to a naked, bleeding 19-year-old. They gave me a robe. I kept telling them to to turn the lights out because he's out there and he has a gun. And they kept saying, Jehovah's going to protect us. Jehovah's going to protect us. Nobody's going to hurt you. The Jehovah Witnesses call the police and they arrive at the house. I have the police report right here and it says, The officer contacted the black female who identified herself as Christine Hayes. The police report also states, Earlier that evening, Christy had met a Caucasian man in the bar and agreed to have a date with him when she got off work. The man paid her $110 in advance. The police said I was promiscuous. He said, you're being promiscuous. All the girls out here are promiscuous. That's what they said. So that shut me down. I remember yelling at him. I said, your job is to protect and serve. Get on your job. I just wanted him to take me back to the club. Just take me back to the club. I wouldn't even go to the hospital. Um, I went the next day and I had cracked ribs and everything else. Just tore up. According to the police report, the officers find the broken glass and tire marks on the road. Vital evidence of Christie's attack. But that is as far as the investigation goes until six months later. On March 23rd, 1980, Christie is dancing this time at the Bush Company, and the guy who attacked her walks in. Did you guys call the police? I think we did, uh, there, and I got in trouble for that, for bringing the police in. I got in trouble for that for the house mother. She says, that's what we have bouncers for. The police report for this night says, Hayes told the officer that the man who had assaulted her several months before was there. She pointed out a Caucasian male in the bar that the officer identified as Robert C. Hansen. 
Hansen agrees to come down to the APD, and this same officer interviews him. Now, what happens next on the police report, you've heard it before, several times. It's almost painful to hear it again. Hansen says Hayes then stripped off her clothes and she performed oral sex on him. Hansen said that Hayes then demanded $75 from him, which he refused to pay since no one had mentioned money before. He said that Hayes then got upset and started screaming, causing him to panic and throw her out the back door of his camper. Yep, he tells the same story about a money dispute. And the officer at the APD, what does he do? He doesn't press charges. He doesn't continue on the investigation. Hansen walks free. This incident had a profound impact on Christie's life. And what follows is a very confused time. I want to turn to alcohol really bad and drugs. I lost my kids to a fighting uh, with um, OCS. They didn't think I was competent. So I turned over custody to my mother, so she raised them mostly. I bet a lot of that has to do with what you went through, you know? None of us are going to get through that without major repercussions. You've been the victim of a horrible crime, and nobody supported you. Add to that, between 1980 and 83, Christy is convinced Hansen is following her. It was take the place, the places that I lived at, because the neighbor said there's a camper outside, and he keeps pop, pop, pulling up in front of your door, getting out, pretending that he's some kind of a locksmith or something. When I got home, the door had been kicked off the hinges. Our drugs were there, our little speed tablets were there, our money was there, our narcotics was there. Nothing was missing. There's a particular incident that Christy remembers when she saw Hanson outside her door, and he saw her. This is on Flower Street in Mountain View. And he was doing something, trying to pick the lock to get in. The dogs were right on the other side of the, the door. And I wanted to see why they were on uh, put on guard. And I peeked out the window and knocked the ironing board over. And he turned around real quick. He seen me and I seen him and he fled. So I called the police, which never came. We don't have any further police reports about these incidents. Maybe because, as Christy says, they never showed up. But we do have another perspective on Christie's experience. Hello. Hi, Nisha. Oh, nice to meet you. I'm calling Nisha, Christie's daughter, on video chat. She was born during this period in 1981 and is the eldest of Christie's five children. So when did you first find out about what had happened to your mom? I was an adult. Tried not to bring it up too much and let her be the one to bring it up just because of how sensitive the subject was. She's had a very rough, rough young adult, you know, all the way up until now she's had it rough, you know, and she's she's been through a lot. She's been through what people would couldn't imagine. I think maybe the drugs, you know, it was a coping mechanism to not think about it. Nisha is as beautiful as her mom and has a calm, considered presence. As we chat, her sweet gray and white pit bull lies behind her in what I can only describe as blissful sleep. I'm blessed that she she did survive because if she didn't, we wouldn't be here, you know. And so I think that makes us stronger, kind of like, you know, rainbow children, if you will, <laughs> kind of in a way. When did you go and live with your grandmother? I think we went um, when I was about six about six or seven, like, I don't remember a lot of stuff. When you go, you know, grow up in a fast, you know, not so good childhood, you don't, you kind of, um, kids kind of uh, delete or, you know, put those memories in the back, you know, where they just don't remember. Wow, I cannot imagine. That must have been so hard on all of you. And I need to check one more thing with you. I know that your mom was attacked in 1979, but she says that Hanson continued to harass her in the 80s. He did. My dad witnessed it. So he he was like, um, like he was, uh, what's the word called, stalking my mom. 
Nisha's father passed away a couple of years ago, but before he did, he told her about Hanson following Christy. He was able to break into their house and he went into her dresser. He was he pulled her underwear. And my dad, my dad told me that he had to watch out for her. You know, I remember my mom and dad saying that they reported him and they, they went reached out to the police several times and nothing was nothing happened. Why do you think that is? They didn't care because these women were to them, you know, bottom feeders. So they didn't, they weren't worth enough. You know, if it was a regular teenager, a high class, then they probably would have made a little bit more moves, but not for, not for those group of young adults. In the experience she went through not being listened to again and again, this still haunts your mom now. She's been drug free, you know, she's come a long, long way, but she's very fragile, you know, mentally wise, you know, just because she's been through a lot. So all we can do is love her and support her how we can. I'm, I'm proud of her, you know. Speaking to Nisha, it strikes me that Christy's story, the ending of it, lies with her kids. Despite their hard upbringing, all five of Christy's children, none of them followed their parents into the street life. They're all holding down jobs and raising kids. They're all doing really well. Thank you. Thank you guys for, for listening to me and um, doing this interview for my mom. I think that this is part of closure for her as well. You see? You see that? Oh, my. Look at that baby. Nisha points the camera one last time at her sleeping pit bull. I just want to boop her nose. I love her. You guys have a good day. You too. Take care. Stay warm. Back in 1983, Glenn Flothy is the first person who truly listens to Christy's story and takes her seriously. She agrees to testify against Hansen in court if it becomes necessary, as does Patty Roberts. But it's still not enough. I mean, it's just, it, it still wasn't tight enough. It, that still doesn't make him the murderer. So we knew we needed a little more. Author Leland Hale. Certainly how the criminal justice system works in the United States, and I suspect elsewhere, is like, these are old cases. You can't just string a bunch of old cases together. You know, when we investigate stuff, it's new, it's fresh. The evidence is hot. So given that, it becomes really important to get Cindy Paulson on board, right? Because her case is fresh. It's just a couple months old, right? She's like, she's the link between this history, his past, and now. And so this is not just a one-off. This is no accident. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? 
Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News and World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. Have you ever heard the expression perfect is the enemy of good? I think about that a lot, especially when it comes to my body and health, because perfect does not exist. It's a total trap. Noom isn't into this perfection thing either. Its unique approach is tailored to each person's psychology and biology. From coaching to recipes, Noom's app provides personalized information to help you on your journey, no one else's journey. I also think it's great that Noom doesn't restrict what you can eat, and it doesn't shame you for treating yourself. And treat yourself, you should. What's more, Noom's approach is grounded in science. They've even published more than 30 peer-reviewed scientific articles about how they work. To date, Noom has helped more than 5.2 million people lose weight by helping them build new habits for a healthier lifestyle. So why not give it a try? Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first-ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. I read her statement, and I was very intrigued to meet this person. Early October 1983, Sergeant Glenn Flothy is convinced a local baker named Robert C. Hansen is behind the murders of two dancers found on the Knick River. But to obtain a search warrant of Hansen's home, he needs the testimony of a young sex worker, Cindy Paulson, who claims Hansen kidnapped and raped her four months prior. Sure, I wanted to meet this person to get a witness for the case, but from reading her statement, you could tell she was uneducated, but with a lot of street smarts. Been a prostitute since she was 13 or 14 years old. There was a sense of feeling in her, a sense of honesty, a sense of caring. And there was a human being that was dwindling away, a human being that was rotting away. But there was a core that was very sensitive, a sense of right. Sure, the police went to her. She didn't come to the police afterwards. But finally, she told the police what happened. What did they do? They kick her in the head. As you can tell, Flothy doesn't mince words about how the police handled Cindy's case in June of 1983. They closed it after just 11 days. Before Hansen could say, well, yeah, I was with that prostitute, but the fucking shit, she wanted more money. Now what is she doing? She's putting some heat on me. That's bullshit. She got what she deserved. And the cops would buy that. Look how many times the police have screwed up. Look at how many times they bought the story. To change the narrative, Flothy needs Cindy. But after her case was dropped by the Anchorage Police Department, Cindy melted back into street life, and there's no guarantee she'll testify. How was he able to track her down? He's in this lone warrior mode. You know, he's he's not even in the office. He's taken on the hours of these women that are, you know, that work in the streets. He's found that if you're out there when they're out there, they're more likely to talk to you. And of course, you have more opportunities to build trust. With some help from street cops, Flothy finds Cindy working in a massage parlor in Anchorage. She's out on the street sleeping with pimps, hustling people, giving head jobs in the car for 15 bucks, being provided by her pimp at parties. Just incredible things these women do as a matter of course in life. It's unreal. And then on the other hand, she reminded me a lot of my daughter. At that time, she was 11 going on 12. She had that little girl in her. She was a little girl that never grew up. So, you know, he's looking at all this and said, I, I have to befriend her. And I, so I can't lecture her. I can't be a cop, but I'm going to try to be like a dad or a father figure. And so he would have what he called coffee clatches, where they would just meet for coffee and they would not talk about the case. 
She talks about teddy bears and stuffed toys and wanting the things that she never had as a child. She came from a broken family. She was passed around. So she started running around with some kids on the street. Got hooked up with a pimp. He took her in and she never had, didn't have nothing as a kid. So this pimp gave her everything. Drove around a big fancy Lincoln, you know, gave her nice fancy clothes, gave her nice jewelry. And yet when you sit down and talk to her, what she wants is to go see Portage Glacier. She wants to go to Disneyland and see Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck and ride on the rides. She wants to go to Fun World and slide down the water slides. That's exactly the stuff my daughter talks about. So I had to build some trust with her. That is, she knew I was willing to accept her faults and I was not going to try to punish her for it. Only two weeks after Flothy is assigned to the case, Cindy agrees to come down to the state trooper office to give a recorded interview about her experience. Is there anything else that this man told you that you can remember, that you can tell me? Any comments that he made, off-the-cuff type things? Or... Just how he said, you know, there was seven other girls. You know, it really strips me out. What happened to them seven other girls? This is the same recorded interview you heard earlier in this series, and the guy who's talking to her, that's the real Glenn Flothy. She's talking about the seven other girls that Hanson told her he had kidnapped before. You think you know now? Yeah, I think I know them. Yes, she says, I think I know he killed them. You thought you'd never see anybody again? You might recall that in this interview, Cindy remembers so many details. The road, the layout of the basement, the color of the house. There was fish, there was wolf skins, there were um, stuffed animals everywhere. Well, Glenn asks her about it afterward. She was able to articulate very well. In fact, better than any witness I've ever had on any case as to remembering what in the hell had happened. I asked her that later on because... Even average intelligent people don't remember things like that. Of course, I guess when your life is on the line, you're going to remember a lot. But uh, she told me her sister was a deaf mute. And so when she grew up, her sister had to learn a lot intuitively. So she learned to share things with her sister in a way her sister would, like feeling or touching a glass or feeling and experiencing or something like that. And that's how she explained to me as to how she developed this memory skill thing. It's that incredible memory that Flothy thinks will be vital to a successful trial. I needed her support for these other victims that were never supported. I needed her to stop this killer from killing these innocent people. So I needed her badly. Not for my own gratification, but for theirs. And I think she understood that. At the same time Glenn begins to secure witnesses like Cindy Paulson and Christy Hayes, he hears about the work Detective Maxine Farrell has put together on her own steam at the Anchorage Police Department. Glenn's always a wonderful cop. I knew him quite a while before. He's a very silent guy and, you know, the guy that would, you would see with glasses studying things and very serious person. When he decided to take the case, he came down and asked what I had because he knew I was investigating so much. Flothy asked for me to be on the task force. And he asked me first, actually. And then he went to one of my lieutenant, and I was, I'm ready to go, you know, it's my case. And, uh, and what stopped you? One of my lieutenants says, no, she's too busy. And I said, busy what? He shook his head. He just, he didn't want me to have anything to do with the case anymore. I was pissed. Why would your lieutenant stop you from working on this case when you had more information than anybody? Because they're so damn proud. You know, they had put it down so much that they, they, they had to save face. I mean, I don't know what they were trying to do. I was devastated by that. Maxine hands over her files on the missing girls, which, as you might remember, contains dental records, family contact details, descriptions of jewelry and clothing. It's with this information and the detailed case histories of Christy, Patty, and Cindy that Glenn starts to build his search warrant with Assistant District Attorney Pat Dugan. Author Leland Hale. You know, Glenn would essentially pull out the records, say this one, this one, this one, this one, and talk 
to Dugan and Dugan then would type it up and put it in legal language. But the icing on the cake comes in two forms. The first is evidence of insurance fraud. Remember those big game trophies lining the walls in Hansen's basement? Well, Hansen had reported those stolen in 1982 and claimed $13,000 of insurance for them. But as Cindy could testify herself, the game heads were still on his wall. The second is that Glenn asks the FBI to create a profile of a possible suspect using case files on Sherry Morrow, Paula Goulding, and Cindy Paulson. What they come back with fits Hansen to a T. And so after uh, several iterations, they were able to get that in front of a judge. And then the judge was like, yeah, no, no question. It's a pitch black freezing morning on October 27th as Glenn Flothy assembles his task force for the final push. Everyone was walking on eggshells that morning. Everyone was saying, Glenn, you'd better be right. The plan is to serve simultaneous search warrants for Hansen's house, bakery, car, and plane. It's like a six-part orchestra, right? They hit all of them simultaneously because they don't want anybody to make a call and say, the cops are here, hurry, and throw it out. No, we're all here at once. We knew we would only have one shot at him. Once he knew we were on to him, we would never get another chance. It's 6.30 in the morning. Two troopers sit outside Hansen's bakery, on alert, waiting for him to finish work. Another set of troopers prepare to leave headquarters to go to Hansen's house. Alongside them are APD cops Greg Baker and Maxine Farrell. Flothy didn't even ask if I could come along on the, th on the search. He just told me to be there. Just come along, you're coming. I'm not asking your supervisor, I'm asking you. And I said, sure, I'll be there. The FBI has told Flothy that if Hansen is a serial killer, he may have kept mementos of his victims, like jewelry. And Flothy knows Maxine is the one to identify it. I was going to go to the end of this because I had to see it come to an end. Because you are a warrior. Must be the Indian in me. I'm sure it is. You're walking in to Robert Hansen's house. What are you feeling? As I look up at the window, there's the wife and the two children looking out the window at all these police cars pulling up. I'm saying, this is going to be a tough one. And that was Darla with their two kids? Yes. So they go up to the door and she lets us in. I'm in the living room with the wife and the children, and the other guys came in behind me and went into the other rooms. And uh, the little girl is just standing there tears running down her face, and the little boy's scared out of his mind. Darla is just beyond words, angry, and saying, why are you doing this? You know, this isn't right. It, it was terrible. It, anybody who has children witnessing a wife and children going through this situation can imagine what heartache it would bring, what sadness, and what a, an impact it would have on the children, as well as the wife. I often can see that little girl standing there with the tears running down her face. What were your impressions of Darla? She is a very beautiful lady. She's a lady in every way. And she's so trying to be so much a wife to this man she had married and faithful to say he didn't do anything wrong. He never did anything wrong. And they're Christians. They go to church every Sunday that kind of thing. And then she kind of broke down and said, well, look, you look at everything you want. You're not going to find anything. As the house search starts in earnest, a search warrant is served at Hansen's bakery. Hansen himself voluntarily agrees to go with troopers back to headquarters for an interview, where Glenn Flothy has set quite the scene. One of the reasons the FBI came up was we anticipated getting the search warrant, but we also wanted to know how to approach Robert Hansen. What are some of the techniques you might use in the interviews? We had his files with his associates written on it and a computer printout of all the information. Up on the wall, I have a complete map of the Knick River area 
and I've got X's on it, and then circled around the entire area,、uh, around where the two bodies were found. I've got a red circle, so you can't miss it. And we also have photographs of the victims lying in the desk, blown up. I mean, these were eight by ten glossies of his victims. So when he comes in and sits down at the desk, you know he's looking around. You know he's looking at these things, but we ain't telling him nothing. So as far as what we know, you're surrounded, and we know you're the guy. Yeah, nine one one a.m. Before you opened your own shop, you worked for other、uh, bakeries or, or bakery firms.、Mm -hmm. I worked for Safeway when I first came. Came to Alaska. The interviewer you are hearing here is Sergeant Daryl Gallion. Although Flothy sometimes asks a question, Gallion takes the lead. And a few minutes into this interview, it's not hard to see why. Is there a lot of competition、uh, as far as the bakery business goes here? Oh no, see, we're not not really there. If you put on a halfway decent product, what there isn't much competition. I think it stands to true with a lot of things. And if you put on quality at a reasonable price, you know, every few customers they're going to tell what things you need. It's bound to grow. Daryl is a master of non-confrontational small talk. He talks like this for nearly four minutes, diverging into the intricacies of moose hunting before he slides in. Bob Eckin, you know, if you get out of high school and you get yourself into a little problem back there,、mm -hmm. it was a、uh, little minor arson, like great.、Right? A little minor arson. It's like a soft ambush. He has Hanson talking about his childhood, his stutter. To、uh, talk to people,、uh, there's many ways of talking to them. People accept you for who you are. The ones that count, and the people that don't count, it doesn't really matter. That's very, that's very, very true. And then he moves in for the kill. What about the incident in December of 1970? Yeah, took the girl down to Kenai. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code Buttery. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that luxury quality within reach. Go to quince dot com slash style to get free shipping and three hundred and sixty five day returns on your next order. Quince dot com slash style. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen. Premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/pack for free shipping and three hundred and sixty-five day returns. Back up to Sunset Lodge. Back into Anchorage and drop it off. You're arrested for that. This is Patty Roberts, the 18-year-old whose rape and kidnapping case got dropped in favor of the real estate secretary assault in 1971. And it started off. It's just a simple,、um, I guess you might call、um, sex for money proposition. We performed the act and so forth. And then, then after a while, she started talking about she wanted more and more and more and more money. Now, bullshit. You know,、uh, you're going back to any any acreage. I'm going to pay you the price that we agreed upon, and that's it. 
We've heard what Glenn Flothy thinks about Hansen's money dispute argument. So imagine him sitting here listening to Hansen in this interview using that same story again and again. What happened on that one? Primarily the same thing. Uh, we agreed upon a certain amount of money. And then the price was supposed to be double. Oh, bullshit. Uh, um, the agreed price was the agreed price and I'm going to pay her. Not anything else. As this familiar refrain plays out in the interview room downtown, at Hansen's house, the search is in full swing. Author Leland Hale. They're, they're also really looking for any, any weapons, but two in particular, look for 357 Magnum, because they think that's the weapon that Hansen used when he kidnapped Cindy Paulson. And they're looking for a 223, some kind of rifle. Which would match the shell casings from Sherry Morrow and Paula Gilding's graves. Exactly right. Greg Baker is in the basement where he first discovered a cache of hidden weapons four months earlier. Back then, he remembers seeing a 223 rifle. And then I showed them where the empty passage, the empty hollow space in the wall was so they could gather up all the weapons that he had. There's a bunch of weapons still there, hidden in the wall cavity. But the 223 rifle Greg is sure he saw before, well, it's gone. And without that rifle, there is no way to connect Hansen to the murder of Paula Goulding and Sherry Morrow. Could Hansen be one step ahead of the police? On the next episode of Mind of a Monster, The Butcher Baker. I think then is finally when it hit me. I sort of got a cold chill and it was very quiet and it was, oh my God, what has this man done? Mind of a Monster, The Butcher Baker is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Aeromedia's producer is Jess Leindevere. Editor, Millie Tapner. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post. Our line producer is Philippa Whittle. Our production manager is Alexandra Kelly. Our junior production manager is Jody Tanner-Wild. Our production coordinator is Shannon Tunicliffe. Our archive producer is Katya Lom. Glenn Flothy voiceover by Mike Bodie. And our assistant producer is Isabel Wilson. Arrow Media series producer is Gabrielle Nash, and executive producer is Stuart Pender. And I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. If you like this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps to spread the word.